0: Our reading is taken from the Book of Psalms. So it's a Psalm 107, starting at verse one. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the land of the foe, from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from the east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, And he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. He turned rivers into a desert, flowing springs into thirsty ground, and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who lived there. He turned the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. There he brought the hungry to live, and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yielded a fruitful harvest. He blessed them, and their numbers greatly increased, and he did not let their herds diminish. Then their numbers decreased, and they were humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in the trackless waste, but he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. This is God's word.
1: Um, Keep it open and especially uh, keep an NIV version because we're going to say that refrain together as it comes up. You see in verse 8, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. It appears four times we're going to say it out loud when it appears. We can't sing, but we can chant, and it's just good to do. Let's pray. Gracious Father, please would you open our eyes to understand these truths, that our hearts would be filled with gratitude and joy. Amen. Now, a year or so ago, uh, the Guardian columnist, Moya Sauna, wrote about thankfulness. And she observed the lifestyle gurus flogging their highly overpriced gratitude journals. And her response was a little bit less than enthusiastic. She wrote this. Even hearing the word gratitude makes my shoulders tense and my eyes narrow. I'm too cynical to get on board with this particular Oprah bandwagon. Too British, too atheist, too sensitive to schmaltz. But she carries on that as she researched, she, quote, found study after study has found a robust association between higher levels of gratitude and well-being, including protection from stress and depression, more fulfilling relationships, better sleep, more resilience. And she describes herself, really, that much to her surprise, as she just engaged in the very simple daily act of, at the end of the evening, writing down, what can I give thanks for? how much happier and healthier it made her. We were designed as humans to give thanks. It's part of your identity as a human. It's who you are fundamentally as a human. You were designed to receive from God who gives everything and to respond in thanks and praise. Very striking that she associates her atheism with thanklessness. Thanklessness. And Psalm 107 begins, give thanks to the Lord. And each of the four sections ends, let them give thanks to the Lord. And this is a psalm that's designed to stir up thanksgiving in jaded, weary people. It's designed to remind us what God has done so that we will be happy and healthy and he will be glorified. Now we're in book five of the Psalms, this term. I'm very excited because I think it's a wonderfully encouraging and uplifting section of scripture. And the Psalms, of course, they're the songbook and the prayer book of the Christian life as we follow God's anointed King Jesus. And in book four of the Psalms, it finishes with God's people crying out for rescue Psalm 105 and 106, it it tells the story of Israel. And Psalm 106 ends with the misery of a people who'd been rescued from Egypt by God going back into slavery because they rejected God. And it ends, Psalm uh, 106, verse 47, Save us, Lord our God, gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And then at the start of book five, God answers that prayer. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, north and south. Gather us, he redeemed and gathered. But the psalm points well beyond the experience of the Israelites in being brought back from Babylon in exile. And it points to, well, something much more. People being gathered from east and west and north and south. And the the descriptions of rescue that we heard read, they're they're quite general. They're not very specific and deliberately so. Uh, They use pictures that throughout the Bible describe our sin and our rescue from sin. In other words... This is not just the song of Israel thanking God that he's rescued them from physical exile in Babylon. This is the song of all God's people thanking him that in Jesus Christ, he has rescued us from the true exile, the misery of our sin and the judgment we faced. So if you trust in Jesus, this is your song. And the experience of... God's faithful love in saving us. It leads the psalmist to say something that, that really becomes the refrain that runs through Book 5 of the Psalms, and that is, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. The word love in that ver- first verse is the same word that's translated unfailing love in verse 8, 15, 21, and 31. It means God's covenant love, his chesed, which doesn't mean I need to clear my throat. It's the Hebrew word for, for God's covenant love. It means a love that doesn't kind of ebb and flow with how I feel, but a love that is an unbreakable commitment to bless and to protect those God has set his affections on. A love that is a relentless determination that God will not let the fires of his passion for his people Burn out. That's the love that God has for us. Now, the four pictures that we have, they're not four different groups of people. You can be fooled because it says some, some, some. Actually, it just says they in the original. It's just a a poor translation. It's, It's not four different groups of people. It's four different perspectives on the experience of being far from God in sin and being rescued by God. You'll have picked up from the reading that each section basically has the same pattern. One, there's a hopeless predicament. Two, a cry to God in distress. Three, a rescue. And four, a call to give thanks to God for his unfailing love and wonderful deeds. Now repetition is is the tool that God uses. I think the theological term is to drive difficult truths into thick skulls like mine, Uh, and the particular truth that God wants to drive into um, embed in in our heads and our hearts is that the experience of being saved from sin by Jesus is truly wonderful. The experience of being saved from sin by Jesus is truly wonderful. Now to back up a second, there may be some here that find yourself a little bit resistant or perhaps unfamiliar with the religious language of sin And in one sense, Psalm 107 said, well, don't reject what the Bible says about sin just yet. Have a listen. See whether any of these four pictures resonate with your life, your experience. Because if they do, if the Bible is right about the diagnosis of what's wrong, then maybe it's worth listening to what the Bible says about the cure too in Jesus. Okay, let's, uh, let's dive in. We've got five little sections. We'll punch through them pretty quickly. Firstly, hungry and homeless to a city and a feast, verses four to nine. Verses four and five. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty and their lives ebbed away. Two evocative pictures of human longing. Firstly, lost, searching, yearning for a place that feels home a place where I'm known, a place where I'm loved and valued for for who I am, a place where I want to be, and a place where I have a right to be. And then secondly, thirsty, hungry, desperately longing for something that will satisfy. You can picture the person lost in the wilderness, Ragged clothes, parched mouth, gnawing hunger, eyes forlornly scanning the horizon, looking for something that's familiar, something that will show the way home. I read of a couple who just last year got lost wandering in the wilderness in New Zealand. Heavy fog descended, they were planning on being out for five days. They weren't rescued until 19 days later, long after their food had run out. But eventually a rescue helicopter spotted the fire and picked them up. And Dion said, they, as, we were, as we were flying back, they gave us a couple of bars of chocolate. He said, that is the best chocolate I have ever eaten. I mean, can you imagine how good that would taste after two weeks without eating anything? Well, hope comes in the psalm as they look up, not to a helicopter, but to God. First 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let's say it out loud together. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. You'll get better, don't worry. You've got four to go. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. See, home is not a place, it's a person. It's God. Moses writes in Psalm 90, "Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations." Same is true for the food and the drink that our souls crave, Jesus declares in John 6:35, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty." I wonder if you've yet worked that out. Only God can satisfy the longings of your soul. You cannot answer an infinite need with finite things. As we heard from Louis, you, just, you can't fill that God-shaped hole with career achievement, with relationships, with popularity or any of the thousand other ways that we seek to address the restlessness, the hunger, the thirst of our souls. Search and rescue parties are no use to you when you're spiritually lost. Even the best organic chocolate cannot satisfy the hunger of the human soul. And the appetites of your thirsty soul will never be satisfied until you come to the unfailing love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can taste it now as you come to him and you'll feast on it for all eternity. Give thanks to the Lord that in his unfailing love, if you trust in Jesus, he has rescued you from a life of, well, unanswered longing, a fruitless searching. He has given you the hope And the fulfillment that comes with having an eternal home and having what your soul craves most in a relationship with him. Secondly, chained in darkness to freedom and light. And the second picture is slavery, chained in darkness, but then rescued to freedom and light. Verse 10, some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. It's the irony of it. We, uh, we, we rebel against God because we want to be free. Uh, we want to be free of his restrictive rules. We want to be free to, to, to obey my desires, to be who I truly am. But to rebel against God's good, wise, life-giving desires, uh, life-giving commands, is not the path to freedom. Instead, we end up in chains enslaved by the very desires we wanted to be free to indulge. And I guess most of us would know only too well the misery of that dark dungeon. And it is interesting, I think, that he associates it with darkness. I mean, it fits the, the imagery of the prisoner or the slave in a dungeon. But addiction never leads you to a, to a free and a full life in the light always those addictive desires, they turn us in on ourselves and we end up hiding in shame and darkness. I was uh, reading the Lord of the Rings again. I was listening to the audiobook. It's still, it's a step up from watching the movie, so don't judge. And it's, the most tragic character in the Lord of the Rings is Gollum. He is destroyed by his obsession, his consuming desire for his precious, the ring. But listen in the light of these verses to how Tolkien describes the moment when Gollum really is lost for good. He wandered in loneliness, weeping a little for the hardness of the world. One day it was very hot, and as he was bending over a pool, a dazzling light from the water pained his wet eyes. He wondered at it, for he had almost forgotten about the sun. Then, for the last time, he looked up and shook his fist at her. But as he lowered his eyes, he saw far ahead the tops of the misty mountains. And he thought suddenly it would be cool and shady under those mountains. The sun could not watch me there. He found a little cave out of which the dark stream ran. And he wormed his way like a maggot into the heart of the hills. And the ring went into the shadows with him. Enslaved by what he desires and driven into the darkness. And in his wisdom and his love, God often steps back and allows us to feel the misery of that addiction to desire. Verse 12, so he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their distress and he saved them from their troubles. Isn't that wonderful? When we cry out to God in despair, when we cry to him from the dark dungeons of our own desires, he rescues. We put ourselves there, he gets us out. In John 8, uh, we're told by Jesus what he will achieve through his death on the cross when he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Sin no longer owns you. Sin no longer determines your destiny. Sin no longer has power over you. Verse 14 celebrates it. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. You ready this time? Verse 15. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Now, some of us probably need reminding that indulging sinful desires is the path to slavery and darkness. But perhaps more of us need to be convinced Jesus really can break us out of the prisons we found ourselves in. Uh, One of the biggest things on TV that has nothing to do with sports, uh, which narrows the category a little bit at the moment, uh, is the adaptation of Colson Whitehead's slavery novel, The Underground Railroad. And one thoughtful person at church, recognising quite how narrow my reading was, uh, gave me a copy of it. And it is brilliant. It's pretty harrowing reading, but it is absolutely brilliant. And one of the characters in the, in the book is this lad, um, Homer, who he works for Ridgeway, who is the brutal slave hunter who tracks down runaway slaves. Homer was a slave himself, but was set free. The striking thing is with Homer that every night, before he can go to sleep, he has to slip the collar on and the shackles and lock them and pop the key into his pocket. He just can't fall asleep without feeling the chains, the manacles against his skin. And I think that for many of us, the daily failure, the lived in reality of our inability to turn away from certain sins, it makes us feel like Homer. We feel like it's just part of us and I can never truly get rid of it. But Jesus has broken the chains and brought us into the life. If you trust in him, you are free. Uh, You may feel the chains every day as you fall back into those same sins. But much as we feel the chains, the truth is they are no longer locked. Jesus has set you free. And one day, one day we'll leave them behind for good. And it will be wonderful. Give thanks to the Lord that in his unfailing love, he has rescued you from your sin and broken the power of sin over you. You are free. Thirdly, uh, foolish and afflicted to healing and wisdom. Verse 17. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. We fool ourselves that turning our back on God's word Is a sign of progress. We tell ourselves, I think we've grown out of the childish notion that we should live our 21st century lives by the rules in some ancient book. I mean, seriously, how can that compare to modern scientific knowledge or to following the path of my own heart? But of course, as we find out, it is foolishness, not wisdom. We think we 're being wise, rational, and mature; we think we 've found the path to life, but we draw near to the gates of death so here 's the thing with sin, with rejection of God that everybody finds out eventually: every sin is an act of self harm. every sin is an act of self harm uh, back in um, I think it was two thousand and thirteen there was a problem on the Isle of Sheppey Road Bridge. Fog from the Thames basically shrouded the dual carriageway on the bridge in thick blanket of fog. And the early morning rush hour commuters were, were charging along at 70 miles an hour, keeping to the speed limit, when suddenly they started to see 30 mile an hour limits. But the problem was everybody else was still going along at 70, and... They're doing all right, and I'm at least as good a driver as him or her, so I'm just going to carry on. I mean, everything its, it's going to be fine. You know, I can drive in fog. I mean, and then bang, 140 of them smashed into each other. Convinced, no, I know what I'm doing. And the same is true in life. Our culture tells us, no, 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 self-fulfillment, that's the way to live. Yeah, the fullest life, follow your heart, pursue your dreams. And it's attractive when it means I can basically turn away from a draining relationship or an unwelcome commitment. But as Adam Curtis has demonstrated in his documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head, this, this individualism, this pursue my own path, it has led to an absolute epidemic of loneliness, of misery, of unhappiness. Now, the drivers who avoided the crash on the Sheppey Road Bridge were those who admitted, I cannot see the full picture and I don't know best, and so they pulled over. And that's what happens here, verse 19. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Interesting, he sent his word to heal them. It is God's word that brings sanity to To our lives. The fads and the fashions of of human culture and human values, they ebb and flow like the tides. But God's word is unchangingly, unfailingly true. You can build your life on it. What's more, it's the source of joy. Look at verse 21 to 22. You ready for 21? Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. If you want more joy in your life, then live by God's word. It is wonderful to go from the, the mess and the confusion of, of living by all the different voices around and inside and instead say with Peter, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. He's rescued you from the self-harm of living life your way and given us his word, which is life and truth. Fourthly, overwhelmed by judgment to safe and at peace. Verse 23. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. When cancer or depression or redundancy strikes or a family relationship really blows up, or just living with the uncertainties of a global pandemic, it can feel like you are a very little ship in a terrifyingly big storm. And when that happens, you need to know that God is with you and God can calm the storm. That is undoubtedly true, but why is this the longest section by far of the psalm? Almost double the length of the other sections. I think it is because a storm is not just a storm. A storm at sea in the Bible is a picture of God's judgment. Ever since Genesis 6, when God responded to human wickedness by sending the great storm of water to destroy the earth. And when the prophet Jonah, God's prophet, refused to obey him and fled onto a ship and a great storm came down on that ship that threatened to destroy it. And when Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, his great central sermon, says, oh, put my words into practice, put your trust in me so that you will be living on a rock and able to stand when the storm of God's judgment comes. So here's the thing. Even if you've never felt any thirst, any longing for God in your heart, Even if you've never felt enchained and enslaved by desires, even if you've never felt that uh, your your life has suffered from, from not being lived by God's rules, even if none of those things are true, every single one of us faces the terrifying storm of God's judgment. Verse 28. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. You ready for the last time? Let's make it count. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. You can't help in those verses, but hear the echo of Jesus calming the storm on the sea in Mark 4 and John 6. And you realize as you read this Psalm, Jesus was doing more when he stood up in that boat than just proving this is God in human flesh. I made the sea, I can calm the sea. He is also giving the disciples a picture of what he's about to do because the central act of Jesus' life was to go to Jerusalem to die on a cross. He would calm the great storm of God's wrath, not by speaking words from a wooden boat, but by staying silent on a wooden cross. And as he did so, he absorbed the wrath of God's judgment, what one writer calls the wild waves of God's wrath so that you and I could know peace with God and reach our desired haven. John Newton, uh, who wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace, was a very, very wicked man. He was a slave trader, and even sailors of the day said he had the most filthy, profane mouth and wicked ways. Sailors said that about him, slave trading sailors. What really changed for him, he he started to have contact with with people who taught him God's word, the Bible. And on a voyage back to England in 1748, he awoke to find the ship in the grip of a terrifying storm. As he staggered up to the deck, the captain uh, with another sailor, the captain sent him back below to get a knife. The other sailor who'd been in his place was swept off to his death. And the next set of waves literally ripped the decking off the ship, exposing them to the storm. And they started to go down, just inundated with water. They bailed out frantically, terrified, working for their lives, trying to save themselves. Eventually, they managed to bail out enough uh, that they thought they could carry on. And he was literally tied to the helm of the ship. Uh, just to, to keep steering, tied so the waves wouldn't wash him off. And during the long hours that followed, as he wrestled with the wheel, never knowing whether the next wave would send them down to the depths, he had time to reflect on his life. And as he did so, he realized that as a sinner standing before the judgment of God, he was in a far more hopeless position than he was as a sailor, standing in the midst of that storm at the sea. But he also remembered Jesus Christ had died on the cross to absorb the storm of God's judgment. And God miraculously spared their lives in that storm and John came to put his trust in the Lord Jesus. He never forgot that day. He marked it. Uh, Every year of his life, he would mark the 21st of March, 1748. I wonder if you know how good it is to have been saved from the wrath of God's judgment. To be able to say, as Romans 5 puts it, we have peace with God. Give thanks to the Lord Jesus that in his unfailing love he has borne that storm we deserve so we can have peace with God. Now, verse 32 um, does seem like a natural place for the psalm to stop, and I'm guessing you're wishing it was the natural place for the sermon to stop too. But the psalm carries on, and so does the sermon, uh, but not for much longer. Fear not. The last section is, why, why does it carry on? It feels a bit odd that it would carry on. But what the last section teaches is that this is not just about me finding salvation from sin. Blessing and judgment always spill over. Blessing and judgment overflow on others. Verse 33, let's just rip through them. He turned rivers into a desert, flowing springs into a thirsty ground and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who lived there. He turned the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. There he brought the hungry to live and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yielded a fruitful harvest. He blessed them and their numbers greatly increased and he did not let their herds diminish. Then their numbers decreased and they were humbled by oppression calamity and sorrow he who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in a trackless waste but he lifted the needy out of affliction and increased their families like flocks the upright see and rejoice but the wicked shut their mouths we haven't got time to go into detail but he says two things in that first bit Uh, the sin and the misery it always overflows and impacts other people When we take sin into our lives, it always seeps out. It has tentacles. It reaches out and corrupts others too. The curse overflows. The same goes for the blessing. Just as when we sin against God, this picture of life that is water, the rivers become a desert, barren, lifeless, empty. When salvation comes, the desert turns into flowing springs, verse 35, and there's an abundant harvest. As you turn back to Jesus... God pours blessing through you and into others. And the cycle carries on in 39 to 42. Again, it goes down and then back up. In other words, this pattern, these four pictures, they're not something that happened to you way back when when you first put your trust in Jesus. We go through these cycles again and again as we fall into sin, all the way home. Verse 43, the one who is wise heeds these things. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. How will you live? Firstly, will you put your trust in Jesus? And will you live his way? Overflowing blessing to your families, your friends and your communities. Do it for your good and for theirs. As we close, the psalm encourages us to respond in three directions. um, uh, So in, up, and out, which looks like flight announcements. um, But uh, do you remember those? Um, uh, Firstly, in, ponder his loving deeds. Turn in and ponder his loving deeds. In other words, think deeply, meditate, chew over God's judgment and salvation. Don't multitask. Turn everything else off and read through this psalm and pray it in and think. Think deeply about God's judgment and salvation. And as you do so, secondly, you'll find yourself looking up to give thanks. Give thanks is one of the most frequent commands in Scripture. Around 66, 67 times in the 66 books of the Bible, we're told to give thanks. And we need those commands because we're like goldfish, we have a five second memory. God does amazing things for us. And five seconds later, what do you think of God? I don't know, life feels pretty miserable right now. I don't think God's very good. We've just forgotten. We've forgotten all he's done for us. And passages like Psalm 107, they remind us of God's goodness so that we'll be provoked to thank him. See, from the first page to the last page, the Bible is the story of God's unfailing love for his people. And the more we understand God's unfailing love that reaches its pinnacle at the cross of Jesus Christ, the more thankful we'll be to God. And when you turn from the Bible story to your story, the same is true. Have you forgotten the mess that sin was making of your life? Have you forgotten how good it is to find you're no longer under wrath but are a child of God? Let Psalm 107 remind you not to skate over the awful reality of sin. Don't pray the confession each week just with your mind elsewhere. Allow the words to penetrate, to provoke, to wake. You see, the more seriously you engage with the reality of sin, the more seriously confession is taken, the more joyful you are when you remind yourself that you're saved. So I guess I'd encourage you to write your own Psalm 107. It doesn't have to rhyme. The English version doesn't rhyme here. There's no need for it to rhyme, but just write your own Psalm 107. Go into detail about what it was like, what what it was like outside of Jesus. The the difficulty, the misery that sin caused. Go into detail about how Jesus found you and saved you. And turn to think about the other things in your life. Write everything you can think of thanking God for just from this month. List them all. And then praise God. And lastly, go out and tell others. If you've been redeemed, verse 2, tell your story. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's the culturally acceptable face of evangelism in, in this day and age. You can tell people your story. You're expected to. You're expected to fill in a review online every time you buy toilet paper, which you remember the time we couldn't even do that. But you know, everybody expects you to, to review your experience. Just do that with what God has done for you. Evangelism isn't some complicated thing for advanced apologetics experts. It's just the normal response of people who have received salvation from Jesus. And so tell others, God is good. And I want to encourage you to do that tonight. Before you talk about semi finals and work and frustrated holidays, tell your story to one another. Ask one another their story. What was it like for you before you knew Jesus? What was your experience of being saved by Jesus? How has he continued to show his unfailing love in your life? And when you've told one another, well, pray for opportunities to tell that story to others who don't yet know Jesus. Who knows, your words this week might be the start of their story of redemption. Let's pray. Our Father God, what beautiful words, what wonderful pictures, what stirring images. We pray that as we take them into our hearts, we might be filled with thanksgiving for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. We praise you. Amen.